Morning. How are we doing? Nice. Happy uh, long weekend for for some people, at least for if you're any kids in here. Got the four day weekend. That's awesome. I'm sure your parents are really pumped. My name is Jesse. Uh, I'm on staff here at Redeemer, um, and I am excited to preach today because I'll be honest with you. This was one of those weeks. I think I said this last time I, I preached a few months ago. I was like, this is one of those weeks that just it tests you, and you get to this point, and you start worshiping, and I'll tell you what, it is a, a massive encouragement just to be here with you all, and uh, I'm excited to dive in. So, uh, We all have people that we admire, people we want to be like, and hopefully that, that that's for good reasons. We want to emulate teachers we have, or, or parents, or role models, or uh, people that we believe are worth following. And as a kid, I really looked up to athletes because like most young boys, I thought I was going to be a professional athlete. And so I saw Reggie, this is my time, was Reggie Miller, Marvin Harrison. Uh, so I'm not, you know, not, not that old, but most people, most people don't know who those guys are, especially if you didn't, if you don't care about sports, if you didn't grow up in Indiana. But I thought, man, I want to be, I want to be like those guys. Uh, but as I got older, I recognized there's more to life than just sports, and I started to think of musicians, uh, artists, scholars that I appreciated, and, and as I was prepared to leave my mom and dad, I was like, you know, they, they kind of they had something, they understand something. So I started to look up to them as well. <laughs> I was 18, you know, I figured it out, but uh, at that same time, I had a gospel kind of awakening of sorts as we might call it, where I started to realize that, you know what, there's only one person who is ultimately worth copying, and that person is the Son of God, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I don't want you to hear me saying that looking up to others is a bad thing. In fact, I think that we've been given many, many good examples of people to examine and people worth copying, but what is most important is that we see them in light of the ultimate person worth copying, who is Jesus Christ. So today our text is going to examine who I believe is a man that is very much uh, worth knowing um, and a person who shows us what it means to be just sold out as a disciple of Christ and living a life that's glorified, uh, that's glorifying God, and that man's John the Baptist. So if you'll stand with me. Uh, we're going to be reading from Mark six fourteen through 29. That's on page... 841 of those ESV Bibles in your row. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we have some out at the connection table that you can grab. Um, We'd love for you just to go pick one up. Here we roll. King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, He is Elijah, and others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. 
But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she, said, and she went out and, at, and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and said, and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on, on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately he sent, the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this day, Lord. Um, man, just a, a sunny day, a cold sunny day, but we thank you nonetheless that we are all able to come here safely to gather. Lord, I just pray that um, as we work through this text, you would just be moving um, through the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would, would open our eyes to what it is you would have for us to learn today, help us to, to know you to to savor you, Lord, um, as our ultimate Lord and Savior. That's that's my goal, God, and I just pray that um, you would you would work in in all of our hearts today, just to bring more worship and glory to yourself. And it's in your Son, Jesus Christ's name, that I pray. Amen. Right, you can have a seat. So I'm going to be honest with you. I when I first looked at this text, I was like, my gosh, the beheading of John the Baptist. Okay, what in the world am I going to do with this? So, I prayed about it, and, um, and I learned that there is a lot more packed into this passage than I ever imagined. So we're going to kind of move through it uh, a little systematically. We're going to talk first about who is this John the Baptist guy. Second, how does he point us to Christ? And then we're going to camp for a little bit, and what is the cost of following Jesus um, and we'll kind of touch on some practical issues that I think we can, we can gain from, from this specific text. So, first, who is John the Baptist? Of all of the people in Scripture, other than God, I think John the Baptist is probably my favorite. I think he is one of the best examples we have of living a life devoted to Jesus. And there's not a ton written about him. He appears uh, at the beginning of all of, all of the Gospels, uh, and he has the task of the one, the big task of the one, uh, who prepares the way for Jesus. He was coming, his coming was prophesied in the Old Testament. It says in Isaiah 40, verse 3, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And in Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And we read in Luke that John was somewhat of uh, a miracle baby, not in the sense that Jesus was. He wasn't born of a virgin, but in the sense that he was born to a woman who uh, was, was very, very old. And most people were like, there's no way that she's going to have a child. Um, he was most likely a Nazarite from birth because Gabriel came to his mom and said, he must not drink any strong wine or any strong drink or wine or um, he can't cut his hair. He can't touch any dead bodies. That's what Nazarites believed. We get, um, we get 
a picture of the Nazarite vow in number six. It was this idea that someone would kind of consecrate themselves and they would, they would say, I am set apart. I am going to be devoted to the Lord solely so they wouldn't cut their hair. They wouldn't drink wine. Um, and as John grew older, he took on the dress of ancient prophets. He wore a rough coat of camel's hair. He wore a leather belt and he ate grasshoppers and wild honey. He grew in his knowledge of the scriptures and in communion with God in the wilderness. And then when it was time, he just blasted onto the public scene. And the gospels give an account that John the Baptist is the one who says, the kingdom of God is at hand and we all need to repent. Jesus himself said in Matthew eleven eleven that among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. He was a courageous man. And he called people to live righteous and moral lives. He called out the religious elite of the day. He said, you brood of vipers, which is bold to go to the powers of the religious institution and say, you all don't know what you're talking about. Because they believed in a workspace righteousness. But they needed to repent and believe internally and have their hearts changed. And this boldness is what got John into the predicament that he was in here with Herod. And our text We have just read that the disciples of Jesus, just before uh, verse 14, last week we were talking about how how Jesus' disciples were sent out and they cast out many demons. They healed many who were sick. And this word gets to King Herod and he's afraid because he's like, I think this is John the Baptist. And others were saying, no, he's Elijah. Or he was like one of the prophets of old. But John goes, no, that's John. Because in this time, a lot of people used to think that resurrections were a sign of impending judgment. So Herod was afraid that John was coming back to judge him. So as we proceed further through the text, I think it's important to to understand how we actually got even to this point. And I want to make some observations about the narrative uh, along the way. So Herod was a great ruler. Uh, Well, Herod the Great, excuse me, Herod the Great was a ruler at the time of Jesus' birth. And when he died he had his kingdom divided into four separate quadrants. And the Herod that we have here in our story uh, was Herod Antipas, or Antipas. I'll be honest, I just say it fast, act like I know what I'm saying. So I'm going to call it Antipas, Herod Antipas. And he was one of the Tetrarchs, which means he was a ruler over a fourth of the kingdom. So the Herod mentioned here was the Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. And we see in this account that John the Baptist had called out Herod on a unlawful marriage to his brother's wife. You see, Herod had been married to a daughter of one of the neighboring kings, and he had an adulterous affair with Herodias, his half-brother's wife, and he eventually married her. So that's not a good thing, um, obviously, right? And John the Baptist let him know it. And according to Jewish law, in Leviticus 18 and in Leviticus 20, he says that it is forbidden to have relations with your brother's wife, not even to mention adultery. So John calls him to repentance. And we see that Herodias has a grudge with John the Baptist. Now, I think she is a good example of what it's like to be confronted with our sin, because the reality is we are all sinners And we fall short of the glory of God. It says it in Romans 3.23. And when confronted with that sin, we have the choice of repenting and turning 
Or we can harden our hearts and say, you know what? I actually know what's best for me. I am the captain of my ship and the master of my fate, and you can't tell me what to do. So she didn't like what John had to say, and she wanted to have him killed. But we see that this is not what happened. It says, Herod feared John, knowing he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet heard him gladly. So this is interesting, because Herod is an example of a man with a conscience that's being nudged and stirred. Because God has placed everybody, he has created us all in a space where we understand that there is a difference between right and wrong. In Romans two fourteen through 15 it says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts, on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So Herod believes that John is a righteous and holy man, and it says that he fears him, but he still likes him and he accepts what he has to say gladly, so he just puts him in jail. But an opportunity came for Herodias, right? and it's ironic, but this opportunity comes for Herodias. Herod gives a party, a big old banquet for the nobles, his military leaders, uh, the who's who in Galilee at the time, right? The, the celebrities, money holders. And, and we read that Herodias' daughter came in and danced. Now, one thing that scholars pretty much all will agree on is the fact that this was no ballroom foxtrot dance. It, it was probably very sensuous, unheard of for women of rank, to be doing this, because normally these dances were performed by the heteri, this is the professional court dancers and the prostitutes that would have been hanging out in the palace. But Herodias sent out her own daughter, and it says that the guests and Herod were pleased. So Herod said to the girl, ask for me whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Now this is not, uh, this was not to be taken literally, because A lot of people said this at the time. All that it meant was saying, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. I'm prepared to be very generous to you. So the girl goes, well, mom, what should I ask for? And Herodias says, the head of John the Baptist. So she goes in and tells that to Herod and says that he was exceedingly sorry. The word sorry that is used here is only used one other time in the Gospels. And it's later on in Mark, in Mark 14.34. And it's used to describe how sorrowful Jesus was when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane preparing to go and be crucified. So I think that's pretty strong language to know that Herod definitely felt sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he didn't want to break his word. So Herod was faced with a decision. You have to understand at this time, like, oaths and vows were taken very seriously. I think that we have, in many ways, lost kind of an understanding of what that means in the greater culture at large, because we don't like to commit, right? We, us poor millennials, get ragged on it all the time. We keep our schedule open. We'll loosely commit, but if something better comes along, I'm going to do that. The Bible does warn us, and this is just a quick aside, that we probably shouldn't 
be like that. Ecclesiastes 5.5 says it's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. But at the same time, there are oaths that are bad, and they're not lawful and should not be fulfilled. If anything binds someone to something that's evil in God's eyes, then it should not be carried out. And that's what Herod was facing. So even though his conscience is being tugged by God through John the Baptist, he chose to carry the oath out. Because how could he back away with that crowd in his presence? How could he be seen as weak or unpowerful? He couldn't have that. So he had the executioner go and kill John the Baptist. So this brings us back to the beginning of the passage. Don't think that I'm wrapping it up. We're, just, we're on point one still. We, so we get back to the front. Right now we know where we're at. Herod was afraid that there was judgment coming his way when he heard of the works of Jesus and his disciples. But the judgment wasn't coming from John. No, it would ultimately come from Jesus Christ because everything that John the Baptist did was in order to glorify God and point to people back to the work and the person of Jesus Christ. His job was to prepare the way for him. So how does John point us to Christ? We see what I want us to see and learn mainly from John the Baptist's life is that he does not think it's about him. It's never about him. In the Gospel of John, at the height of John's popularity, all the people start going to Jesus. They get baptized over there. They they leave John and they go, we're going to go follow this guy. And John's disciples are like, dude, what? You've got nobody. This is like crazy to his disciples. But John says later on in the gospel, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He, that is Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. That's a wild statement. That's the equivalent of someone who is at the height of their fame, be it acting, sports, successful businessmen, musician, and just saying, either I'm done or I'm going to halt my, my progress right here. John looks toward Jesus Christ always, and he had no issues saying that it's not about me, it's about him. He must increase, and I must decrease. That's why I like John the Baptist so much. I think part of it is because he seems so unattainable to me. You know, I like to kind of think about living like a radical life and running around eating locusts and honey and growing my hair out. Um, and I've, tr- I've not tried the locusts and honey. I've tried the hair thing. <laughs> I get far, and I'm like, no, that is that awkward middle stage, and I just cut it all off. But anyway, as I was studying him, I realized I fall so short of John the Baptist, not even to mention Jesus, but I think what attracts me so much to John is that he points to Jesus. Someone far greater. And the beautiful thing about following Jesus is we don't actually have to measure up. You can't. You can't even be John the Baptist let alone Christ. All you can do is repent. That is, lay down your life and say, you know what? I cannot do it. I need a Savior. 
and rests in the finished work that was accomplished in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But, then you do have a decision of what to do with your life. If you've made that decision to follow Christ, and I hope you have, then you have a decision to make. You can take this grace and kind of just sail through life, tack your faith on to your life, just compartmentalize it, right? Make it just kind of a thing that you do on Sundays, maybe one night throughout the week. You can say, I've got my work and my family and my friends and my church friends. I'll go to work, hang out with my family, hang out with my friends, my church friends. Maybe I'll serve, go to a community group. And you can just kind of go through the motions. I am guilty of this. You know, I, I have found that even working at a church, it's almost even more dangerous because you just start making it happen. Let's make Sunday happen, right? Let's just get it through. Let's make sure we're covered. We'll preach the gospel and we'll move on. But I have found in my life That when I just go through the motions and I just do kind of whatever I really feel like doing, I cheapen the grace that I have been given in Jesus Christ. You see, God did not, He did not set in motion a plan of redemption so I can live a few years, be comfortable, and have a little fun. You see, we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ to live a God-glorifying life as we love the Lord our God with all our heart and our soul and our mind and our neighbors as ourselves. And we, if you are a Christian, have been filled and indwelled with the Holy Spirit and His work actually makes it possible for you to glorify God and live an absolutely crazy God-glorifying life. So even if you dress yourselves, if you want to run out of here and get in your camel's clothes and your belt and eat locusts and honey, you can do that for the rest of your life and be exceedingly joyful because I promise you, when you lose your life for Christ, all of this joy and the fun and the comfort, well, it will be there. Maybe not in the way that you think it should be, materialistically, or health and wealth. But I'm also not going to say that John the Baptist's life is exactly a uh, picture of what you need to copy in order to be a follower of Christ. But what I will say is that if you want to follow Jesus, then you do have to reckon with what this means practically. What fruit is coming from that claim? There has to be a flavor, right? A flavor that people can smell and taste as we operate in a loving community. And people look at that and say, I don't understand what's going on there. You know, kind of like, think of your most favorite food. And you walk, like when I walk into my, my, I go to my mom's kitchen and I'm like, I, I just, I get to the door and I just, I like that. I know what that flavor is. It's different. But I know it's good. That's what I'm talking about. Something not of the world. 
So look back and see in this example of John the Baptist and Herod. Herod fears John, but he still heard him gladly. He was being told he was living completely wrong. You're living in sin, Herod. But he still saw something in John that is attractive. When I read this, I have to ask myself, am I living a life that shows others that I'm nothing without Christ? That I am nothing without the Holy Spirit working in and through me as he brings his kingdom, as God brings his kingdom to this city or wherever you go? Do I just come on Sundays and get out of here as quick as I can without plugging in, live my life and come back and do it all over again? Or do I really reflect on what it means that people will know that I am a disciple of Jesus Christ by the way I treat my fellow brothers and sisters? Do I care about the people I interact with that have never heard this good news? All these questions I have been wrestling with very recently. The reality is is we live in an interesting time because chances are we're not going to be physically persecuted for our faith, although we do absolutely have brothers and sisters around the world who are. But there are other ways that we're persecuted. Um... But most often, in our immediate context, we face more the dangers of comfort and ease of life. I think we probably face many of the similar challenges that Herod had because we have outside pressures and we can be faced with this decision to fear man or to fear God. As an example, to give complete transparency, I can be a very anxious person. If you know me well, you know that. If you know me kind of well, you might be like, yeah, right. You're not anxious. You wear your sandals around and listen to jamming music. I don't know. You don't look anxious to me. But the reality is, is I am anxious. And I think it's a problem that actually is is more common than not. And I'm not talking about um, there is anxiety that comes from the actual physiology of our body, and that's not what I'm talking about. That is a real thing, and I don't mean to make light of that at all. But I'm talking about, for me, what I deal with and what I think is common is a general anxiety that comes from fear of essentially either knowing what may not happen, there's a lot of what-ifs in our life, or maybe anxiety rooted specifically in the fear of man and we're always afraid of what others might be thinking of us. And I, I don't think that social... I think social media is something that has not helped in this area because we, want, we see what others supposedly have and we're like, I want that. But we don't, so we either try to get it or we try to give off the idea that we have it and we don't. We constantly want people to like us. It'd be like me sitting at my well, the table in the elementary room this week, like taking a cool picture and being like, really loving sermon prep. And I'm like, no, this was toil. I, I didn't know what I was going to say three days ago. <laughs> it was horrible. And I scroll through, you know, I scroll through social media. I'm like, man, these guys really enjoy this. I, I, I fight. I, some days I feel like I'm crawling up to get here. 
We give teens a hard time, ironically, teenagers in the room. Don't let them give you too hard of a time because the reality is, is in many ways, now don't use this as ammo either against your parents, but the reality is, is we all are like teenagers in the sense that we want people to think we're cool. I want you all to like me. I wish I didn't care, and I don't mean just the flippant attitude of I don't care what anyone thinks, I'm just going to do me, and you can't tell me what to do. But I mean, I want to be so secure, like John the Baptist, in my relationship with God that I can't help but be joyful and safe, secure and confident. And from there I want to be propelled to mission, to a hurting world, and encouragement to the building up of everyone else around me. Now my goal as I get close to the end of this is not to have a New Year's resolution sermon. I'm, I'm not trying to do that by any means because it is always a good time to be reflecting on how you're following your Lord every day. But it does happen to be a New Year, so I've got three concluding little encouragements or thoughts that I think we find in this passage um, and kind of what it can look like just to really, really wrestle with being devoted to a lifestyle of following Christ. Uh, my first encouragement to everyone is that I, what I see, and what I see from John the Baptist is that we need to take a serious look at who or what it is we are really glorifying. Who is it? What is it we're really glorifying? What do we make the most of? Because, like Herod, do we glorify those in the world or the things of the world? Or like John, do we glorify our King Jesus Christ? Do we say with Herodias, don't tell me what to do. It's my life. Or do we repent and say, God, do we repent and say, God, my life is yours. Do whatever you please with it. Even if that means losing everything to gain you. My second encouragement is that we would become a community that is so on fire for the gospel of Jesus Christ that we love one another and serve one another in crazy ways and we proclaim the excellency of our God as we go on mission to our neighborhoods, our schools, our workplaces, and wherever, we el- wherever else we go. And from that, people can't help but see the love of Christ working in and through us by the power of our Holy Spirit. We have a choice to just kind of play community and play church or to really, really do it. Like John, let's rest in grace, but take seriously what it means to be righteous. We can't just be content with playing around with our sin that hides in the the corners and the depths of the dark places in us. There's no time for that. Let's bring that sin to the light, slay it, and rest in the fact that God wants us to have so much more than our silly pleasures and our sins. He wants us to be changed into the image of his son. We've got to fight hatred and bitterness and slander and gossip and not even have it mentioned among us as a community. Let's honor and serve one another, right? Like we... We constantly need people to, even just very practically, to serve. Redeemer kids, 
We need people to serve. My encouragement would be if you've made this your home and you haven't found a place yet to plug in, please do. And then let that extend beyond Sunday as you dive into this community because if we just take it for granted, then we're really just wasting our time. My final encouragement, and it kind of goes along with the first, is that we realize we're all disciples of someone or something. No matter who you are, you follow someone or something. Whatever you spend your time reflecting on, hoping for, wishing for, thinking about, whatever wakes you up at night, that's probably something that you are most in love with. Let's be disciples of Jesus and love the glory of God more than anything else. Because no matter what happens in the new year, remember this, 2017 was a blur. 2018 is going to be the same. Because all of time is ultimately moving towards one moment when, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So ultimately, that's what matters. So let's be like John the Baptist and always point to Christ because he preceded Jesus in the proclamation of the kingdom of God and the fact that we need to repent. Even the description that we just read in this text was a foreshadowing of the one who was mightier than he. It's a a passion narrative about John that is foreshadowing the passion narrative of Jesus Christ. Because similarly to Jesus' death, this death was also placed by pressure from leaders and political leaders. Both Pilate and Herod acknowledged the innocence of the victims. Both decided to gain the favor of men instead of the favor of God. And they forfeited their soul in the process. So you have this choice today. If you're a Christian, then you need to daily die to yourself, take up your cross, Follow Jesus and rest in the fact that you have the Holy Spirit in you, empowering you. If you're here today and you have not accepted Christ as your Savior, then I would encourage you to take some time and reflect on what it is or who it is you are following, because it is someone. And if you say, no, it's not, then it's you. And you will fail you. Trust me. My hope is that you would see that nothing in this life will satisfy ultimately. Only God can. And he's made a way through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus lived the perfect life. You've heard it that you could never live, died the death that you deserve, and he rose again, defeating Satan, sin, and death. And he bids you to come and follow him. And I promise you, I promise you, that nothing will bring more joy to you than following Christ. He said it himself in John 10, 10, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. So he means that you saying, I'm not living for myself anymore, I'm going to live for you, Jesus, that does not mean you're laying down all the fun. You might have to lay down some sinful things that you think are fun, but I promise you, you will find joy in him. So let's with John the Baptist proclaim that this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, 
I must decrease. And with Jesus, as he said in Luke 4, let's proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and set at liberty those who are oppressed because we rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ and he is worth absolutely all of our devotion. Amen. Amen? So we have a chance to respond now to what Jesus did by participating in communion. Uh, in Matthew 26, Jesus took, at the, last supper, at the last supper, he took the bread and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and he gave thanks and said, Drink, all, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So each week we come, we remember what Christ did and his death, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Uh, we take a piece of bread, we dip it in the cup, juice and wine, wine's marked with twine, uh, if you're not a Christian today, then take this time to, to reflect and, uh, and to pray. And I, and, and, I, and I hope that you just, you do recognize how much Christ loves you. He wants you. Um, if you want to talk with pastors or prayer responders, they'll be out here in the gym um, ready to pray with you. If, if you need anything, that's for everyone. So, uh, yeah, let's pray. Father God, I thank you, Lord, for this day. God, we thank you for the example, the examples that you have given us of men and women who have given up everything to follow you, and we thank you that ultimately through them we see you, Lord. I pray that as we fly into this new year, you would just help us to remember that you are ultimately satisfying, worth all of our devotion, And you are above all what we need to be glorifying. God, I pray that you would work in our hearts, bring that that message uh, to our to our minds and our and our and our lives always and help us to bear fruit for your glory alone and not ours. We thank you, Lord, that you did come and live the life we can't and died the death that we all deserve for our sin, Lord, and we thank you that we can rest in you, and we worship you for that, and it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.